Good morning. The passage today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, and that will be found on page 1725 of the Pew Bible. Love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Libby. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year and such. Hopefully you've already gotten past your New Year's resolutions. In three weeks, I'm going to preach out of uh, John, uh, not John, uh, Romans 12, that whole chapter. And I'm going to reference what Libby read in this sermon. But I want to This morning, I want to kind of frame the whole year for us and what we're going to be doing together this year. And so I want to start by um, going through a passage that we memorized as a church last year. And if you don't know it, that's fine. The whole point of memorizing and saying anything is really to pay attention to the content. Okay? So you you can say it with me if you want to. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. 
Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you might, you might be thinking, Nick, why, why that one again? That's so 2017. And, um, and if you're thinking that, you may not have read literally the next two verses right after that, which are this. Peter talking to this group of people. He's their pastor. He says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Right? So there. <laughs> but, but also, we t- we've talked about this a number of times at this church, that there's basically four kind of levels of knowing something. And, you know, inspired, the inspired level is you hear it for the first time, you're like, wow, I learned something. And the familiar level is like, you hear it again, and you're like, wow, I heard that before. And then the boredom level is, oh, I've heard this before, and I think I know all I, I, there is to know about this, Right. And the mastery level is where, without anybody telling you anything, the thing comes up in you when you need it, okay? And there are some things in life where, where familiarity is really all you, all you need, okay? Like People Magazine, just please don't go beyond familiarity, right? But there's other things, especially spiritual and moral things, where you have to have mastery. You can't just have familiarity. And there's at least two reasons why that's incredibly important. The first is, is that life happens way too fast for you to have to think about your spirituality and your morality. (laughs) Everything in life is spiritual and moral by nature. It's integrated into everything that there is and is always constantly happening. And you just don't have the energy or the capacity to be working it all out every minute. It has to be mastered so that you can just react and it just happens. Otherwise, you just can be exhausted by 9 a.m., okay? Or you're just going to quit. But secondly, we don't want to know these things because we're sinful. And so if you're going to know something that you don't want to know, you've really got to know it. Okay? And so what, what this teaches us and what we tried to learn last year about godliness and about having one master and all of that, we have to have it absolutely cold mastered. Okay? And I'm going to remind you this stuff as long as I live in the tennis body. So you're going to have to kill me if you want to stop. Okay, so the main emphasis of the beginning of the passage in Second Peter is that we have everything we need for godliness. His divine power has given us everything we need. We can become people of spiritual substance. We can become it in increasing measure. And if we become it in increasing measure, it will keep us effective and productive in knowing and following Christ. So, and last fall we talked about how— um, That's not mainly achieved. It doesn't happen in us mainly by us just trying a lot harder, right? Godliness doesn't come by us mainly working harder. It comes by us having just one master, right? The thing that makes progress in the faith, real progress in godliness in our character, so difficult is not that the path is so difficult. It's that we're trying to go in two directions at one time. And if you try to go in two directions at one time, you don't get very far in either direction, 
Do you understand? And that's why that passage in Matthew 6 that says you can't have two masters ends with, therefore, seek first his, that's God's kingdom and his righteousness. Before anything else you seek in your whole life, seek those two things, his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else you need will be added to you. You seek those and God will seek everything else for you in a way. Now, one of the reasons why um, godliness is so important to talk about is because God's goal for you is not just your forgiveness. Okay, it, this, is, this is important to recognize in churches that are fundamentalist or evangelical, that believe in the Bible and that believe in personal faith. That where they, they understand that what the Bible teaches is that every individual human being is related to God directly and not just in mass— Right? We are related to each other, and you can talk about us in a group, but we all stand individually before God. Ezekiel 18, for example, says that explicitly. Right? It says, I won't even judge a person's relationship to their parents. If they trust me, if they honor me, they're mine. Right? And if they don't, don't I don't care what their parents did, they're not. Right? And so, and so evangelicals, we believe this idea that we have to be saved or redeemed personally, and you believe in Jesus to do that. And so what we often believe is, is that we are sinners. Jesus and God is holy. That creates a relational problem. Jesus dies for our sins. We trust in Jesus. Jesus gets our sin. We receive his righteousness. We're set right with God. We get to go to heaven. Right? Now that's all true. But that's not actually all of it. And if you talk about that like it's all of it, then what does every sermon after that have to be about? Right? There's really only one thing left. It's evangelism. It's like other people believing in Jesus. Because if, if, if everything is just us believing in Jesus, and now we're saved and that's fantastic, right? Then all that's left is for other people to believe in Jesus, right? And so godliness is basically just like other people have a hard time believing in Jesus if you are an idiot, okay? So if you could just be less terrible, then other people might want to believe in Jesus, which is the most important thing so they can be saved. That's actually not the gospel, okay? The gospel is, is that God, through the death and resurrection of Christ, makes it possible for us to receive forgiveness and to receive the miracle of regeneration, where God gives us spiritual life, and he then— adopts us as his children, and we're justified, or we have right standing with God, right? So that we are indwelled by his Spirit, so that we can become like him. We can become what the Bible calls godly or holy. And that is God's endgame. That the, the, his image bearers in his creation would so become themselves through redemption that they would be the pinnacle of their possibility, which is like him in true righteousness and holiness. In case you need a verse for that, we actually talked about this when we did the substance series, right? You were taught, that is you who are a Christian, you were taught that with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted. See the progressiveness of that? It's being corrupted by its deceitful desires. But to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self, what is this, what is this new self for? What is God's endgame? Created to be like God, not as a deity, 
but to be like him spiritually and morally in true righteousness and holiness. That is his endgame for you. That is the divine conspiracy, right? Now, you might be like, okay, whoa, 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 okay. I didn't know that the whole salvation Christianity thing was going to come with a catch like that, right? Like, I thought that it was like, God, I'm a sinner, yes. God is really nice and loving, and he's going to give me salvation, and I get it. Like, and then now you want me to, like, be a good person and all that stuff, and like, I just, that's like, I don't like your salvation with a catch. And here's the thing about that. It's not a catch, okay? If you think it's a catch, the gospel got preached to you wrong in the first place, but it's not a catch. It's a purpose, okay? Think, think about it, and maybe in, listen to this story. So imagine, like, a 17 or 18-year-old young woman who's just immigrated from Iran. She's living in Milwaukee. She has no money to go to college. She's got the grades and the smarts to do it, but she just, and so, but she's pretty. And so she decides, like, she, she decides to just, like, enter, like, one of these beauty contests to just, like, maybe she could win some money for college. Maybe, who knows, who knows where this could go, right? So she enters this thing, and she does, like, the first competition, and it goes pretty poorly, right? And, you know, she's somewhere in the whatever placement, and she comes out. And then, she, well, as she's getting ready to leave the building, this, this like, middle-aged woman in her 50s in, like, a pants suit comes up to her, you know? And says, hey, I saw you in the competition today, and um, I, I honestly think you have real potential in this. And if you'd let me help you, I mean, I really think you could win on the state level. And if what you want is, is to go to college and have some money to go to college, I think you could win it. Right? And she's like, you would tell me? And the lady says, well, yeah. And so over like the next four or five months, this woman like meets her for coffee and like they meet at like stores and she talks about fashion and makeup and oh, But she also talks about poise and posture and reading a crowd and reading the facial expressions of judges and speaking with poise and having perfect diction and speaking with nuance and yet brevity and like all these other dynamics. And she's just like, I thought this was going to be about being pretty and like not saying something stupid. And like, and so she's, she's like growing a lot. This woman kind of feels like a mentor to her. And then like, finally, like the big, and so she like, she's placing and she gets in the state competition and then she like outright wins it. Right. And she gets like $25,000, $30,000. And she's like, she's like made her goal. Like that'll pay for at least the first semester of college. Right. And so, <clears throat> And so she's so happy, and she, she says to this woman who's her mentor, and she's like, I'm so happy that this happened. And she says, I'm really glad that you've achieved your goal. And she's like, I know. And then the woman says, but it was never my purpose. And the girl's like, wait, what do you, what do you mean it wasn't your purpose? She said, this was never my purpose. It was always the goal. And she's like, wait, wait, I don't understand what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is weird. She says, I haven't told you this. I'm not a fashion woman. I'm one of the undersecretaries at the U.S. State Department, and I'm looking for our future ambassadors. And my purpose in this is that you would be the, UN ambas the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in 2035. Right? You see how the game just changed? Right? Like, it's fine to reach certain goals. And look, like, I know you want money for college, metaphorically, in terms of like, like, we all want to be loved, and we all want to know that people care about us, and that we're going to be successful, and that we matter, and that our lives are going to be happy, and all that stuff, okay? That's not God's divine purpose. His divine purpose was, is that you would so bear His image 
that you would be made like him by him in true righteousness and holiness forever, starting now. And until you get that in your head and heart, you're not even playing on the Christian field. You might be saved even, but you don't, you don't know what's really happening, and so you're going to be really frustrated, okay? Okay, if you can advance the slide, that'd be great. Um, so, so, okay, imagine for a second, like, um, a reef or like a sandy beach, and there is this big sailing ship sitting on it. Okay. It's like double mast. It's got the wheel, like from the pirate stories and everything. And it, you know, weighs about like eight or 12 tons. I mean, these ships, sailing, big sailing ships weigh a ton, right? And, um, and God says to you, I want you to sail it across the world and into eternity. Right? Take it across the world and into eternity. And you're like, um, right? And you're, you're standing there, and let's say you're a land lover, right? And you've never seen a tide before. And so here you are with this boat that weighs like 28 tons sitting on the sand, right? And you have no, and you have no idea, how, like, what the heck is going on? And so you're like, well, well, I guess this means I'm supposed to pick it up and carry it across the world, right? And so that's crazy, right? And so people have a couple different reactions. So you can either just quit and just be like, I can't, that's impossible. That's crazy. That's impossible. That's crazy, right? It's impossible. Or you can be like the guy who like stands next to the boat so that whenever God walks by, you like pretend you're trying to lift. I'm working here. I'm trying, I'm trying, right? I'm trying, right? And like, you might be one of those people, like you've been a Christian for a while. All the same stuff is going on in your life. Nothing's really happened. There's no, no true godliness or holiness to speak of. But you're like, you're in the game, kind of like, you believe in Jesus, you go to church and stuff sometimes, and like, you're, metaphorically, you're standing by the boat and like lifting on it a little bit, but you really think the thing itself is impossible and probably unreasonable, right? And what we don't realize is that there is a divine tide that is supposed to come in to lift the boat, and the wind of the Spirit is supposed to blow that thing. And all we're really supposed to be doing is steering. Okay, God has given us everything we need to be, to be essentially carried in this thing. He's given us divine image. He's given us this incredible motivation that's supposed to buoy us. And then His Spirit blows to drive us forward and... There's an integrity in the ship that is virtue itself, and it's meant for us to be able to just pilot this thing, and it's not meant to be this horrifically difficult thing, and it's certainly not impossible. But it feels impossible because of a misunderstanding that we have about how we were supposed to get from here to there. Because the thing is, is that on one level, a lot of people understand that we're supposed to be saved or initially forgiven by faith, by believing in Jesus. 
And then some of us think that we're supposed to like work really hard to be a good person. But some of us also realize that transformation is supposed to be received by faith too, right? And that's difficult for people because it's hard enough to understand how you can just receive a right standing with God. But the basic metaphor in justification is forgiveness, right? And the word give is actually even in the word forgiveness. And if, you, if you've ever been forgiven or offered forgiveness, you realize that forgiveness is something that has to be given, right? And so it's not completely outside our capacity to understand. But what about giving somebody character? Right? How do you, how do you get through power, right? His divine power has given us everything. How do you through power give somebody character, especially if their character is their God-given personality and you want them to be themselves? How does that even work? How do you even conceptualize it, much less believe in it? Or you, have to, you have to have some conception of something before you can believe in it. And what that ends up leading us to is actually sort of a haunting question, which is something like this. If he, God, hasn't made us godly by his sheer power, and if we know we can't become godly in our own power, right, the boat's not in water, and we can't lift it, then how can God say that he's given us everything we need for godliness? Right? And so we're going we're gonna, to like get to the bottom of this in this year, this whole year, 2018. We're going to focus on this. How do you receive a gift that in our worldliness doesn't seem to be given and that we can't make ourselves? How does a Christian who feels utterly defeated or incapable of taking hold of the real end of our salvation, which is godliness, how do you get there from here? How do you get from being on the beach with a beached boat to sailing? And I would be willing to bet that there are just, there's piles of us that kind of feel that way. We believe in Jesus, we're Christians, but man, we're never going to be that thing. It turns out when you study the whole of the Bible, godly character or real godliness requires at least four things. Four main components. One is the miracle of regeneration. Like you have to believe in Jesus so that he can give you spiritual life so that there's a capacity for this, right? The Bible sometimes calls that the new birth. But what John 3 says, it's, it's kind of like the wind blowing around and you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. Like you might not even feel anything. There's no way. All you can do is trust in Jesus and believe that he's done that and that it's there, right? So you believe in Jesus. The second is, is that you've got to pursue it. It's a certain kind of sweaty business. And so like there's a certain amount of discipline that is required, right? We talked about this in the Substance Series. We have to embrace discipline and escape diversion. But third, like, you can believe in Jesus and become a Christian and not have any idea what you did, okay? Like, I mean, kids do this all the time. Like, when a four-year-old, when you tell a four-year-old, hey, you should believe in Jesus because he's the Savior of the world, and they say, okay, and they really believe and they do it. Now, did they do it for, for like, virtuous epistemological reasons? Like, well, I mean, no, they're four, but they're still believing in something that's actually true, right? And they're believing maybe their parent. It's actually believing right authority, which is fine. And they happen to be right. And does Jesus save them? Well, yeah. 
But that doesn't mean they know anything about what just happened. What does it mean that they now belong to Christ? That the Spirit lives in them, that they bear the image of God being remade for true righteousness and holiness. What does it mean that they're bound into the body of Christ, adopted into the family of God? I mean, all that stuff. There's all that stuff, right? And they don't know any of that. And see, that's, that's your identity in Christ. And if you believe in, you can believe in Jesus and have no idea what you are. Does that make sense? And you see, that's a very difficult place to be because you feel like because you believe in Jesus, this should be going. But if you don't understand the boat or the person in it, man, it's really hard to sail. And so there's a lot of us that are struggling, not because of the motivation piece, which is what I'm going to get to, but because we just really have no idea what happened to us yet, right? But then the fourth thing is motivation. What actually makes us able to reliably with desire and devotion choose the good because we don't do that, right? C.S. Lewis once said that um, the main thing people learn when they try really hard to be a completely good person is that they're a terrible person, okay? I mean, when I was younger, I once thought when people would tell me that they felt like they were a good person and they could be a good person. I, I used to think that like they're just made of better stuff than me, Right? I was like, well, I'm not a good person, but maybe you're a good person. And then I thought maybe later as I got older, I thought, well, maybe they're just like, they focus on some things and not other things. And so the things that they focus on, maybe they're kind of good at. And so maybe they're just a little naive, right? I don't think that anymore. If somebody tells me they're a good person, here's what I think I actually know about them. They've never actually even tried to be completely good. They've never tried to take everything that's morally obvious in the universe in every way that would oblige them to act, feel, or be and take all of that in at once and try to do it with complete consistency in all its totality. If you try that, okay, you're not, you're not going to get to noon, okay? You're not, you're not going to make it, most of us are not going to make it out of the minute we start doing it in. Some pride or lust or anger or hatred or frustration or self-importance is going to rush in into like one second. And so how, how does a creature like that get a motivation so powerful that it buoys us and moves us into freely and willfully and with strength and virtue, choosing with happiness the good reliably. With a similar reliability to Jesus. That's, man, that's tough. But it's, it's right in front of us. In every page of the Bible, it's right in front of us. You could, you could ask, but you could ask this. Here's, here's hopefully a clarifying question. One way to ask it would be this. What drove Jesus? Like, he's a divine God, man. He's 100% a human being. And he lived this incredibly beautiful life and heroic death. And he was just driven all, I mean, he just, all he had to do was be himself, right? How, how did that happen? Like, you, you could say it like, like that. What was so powerful in him that it can do the impossible in us, right? And here's the thing. He literally says it. 
It's in John chapter 17, and he explicitly tells us. There's this whole section about where he talks about God's glory, and he said, I've come to glorify you, now glorify yourself as you glorify me, and there's all this glory, 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 and he's praying for the Christians, and he's like, God, would you help them be what they're supposed to be? And he gets to this one point, and he says this. He says, I'm coming to you, the Father, now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that purpose— so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Okay, every one of those words is important. It's not some. It is, the, it is all of the joy that can fit into the size of the divine heart. That's probably a lot of joy. Okay, the full measure of not just joy, but my joy. That is— there was a reason why, there was a set of reasons why Jesus had joy. And that's not just anything, okay? It is a certain set of things structured in a certain way, related to each other in a certain way, and that, that is his joy, and it is joy, and it is within him. And he, he says, I'm saying these things, and he's doing these things, right? In the Gospel of John, and in his life, death, and resurrection. And he says, the reason I'm doing this is so that, they, so that they will have in them the full measure of my joy. I want you to understand that it was not just in the cross and the resurrection that Jesus was accomplishing your salvation. Because your salvation isn't just your forgiveness. Your salvation is a transformation into godliness. And one of the things you required for that was not just his death and resurrection, was not just the releasing of the Spirit, but was a body of things he was compiling to give to you that would be a basis for the buoying motivation you would need to sail. And it is the basis of joy. The power in Jesus, the thing that drove him, the thing that was so powerful in him that it can do the impossible in you, is joy. It's joy. It is impossible to become ourselves in Christ without a great attention to the breadth and depth of the basis of the joy of God. The second most obvious verse, which I'll preach on, I think, in two or three weeks, is in Hebrews 2, 1, where it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, what was his motivation? For the joy set before him did what? He endured the cross, and he scorned its shame. All the abuse people heaped on him, personally, didn't matter. Scorned it. And he endured the cross. One word from the Lord Jesus. And 10,000 angels end that ordeal. Right? He endured the cross and he scorned its shame until he completed everything and sat down at the right hand of God. And he did it because of joy. And not just any joyful thought, not just any happy bliss thought, but because of the joy set before him. That was a specific body or group of things his mind was set on. What he was going to accomplish, what it was going to do, how it was going to affect us, how it was going to affect you, and what was going to happen in your life thousands of years later, four, ten thousand years hence. And all of that was in his mind, and that was an embodiment that he was happy about. And he had joy in it, and that joy was sufficient 
It was set before his mind that he endured the cross and he scorned its shame and he accomplished everything perfectly and he sat down at the right hand of God. It was that joy that drove Jesus. Okay, now, is that just two verses, right? There's another verse where the Apostle Paul is sitting in prison and he's kind of rotting there. Um, Roman prisons were not fun. And he was thinking about how he would rather just die. Because I don't know how many times he'd been in prison, but it was a number of times and people were giving him all kinds of problems. And he said, you know, I was thinking about this. He's writing to these people he had led to Christ. And he said, you know, I was thinking about this and whether or not it would just be better for me to die because instead of rotting in this prison, I would go to heaven and be with Christ. Right? But here's what I came up with. He says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. What does he mean by progress? They're already Christians. They're already justified by faith. They already have the Spirit. They're already adopted in the family of God. What's the, what's the progress? Right? It's godliness. It's to bring them to, what he says a few verses later, to full completion. Right? Teleos, perfection. Fullness in godliness, in Christ. And there's two things that they're going to need for that. They're going to need to grow in godliness. And they're going to need strength and motivation. They're going to need joy. And he says, so my goal is that because of me, on account of me, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what Jesus says in John 17? He says, I say these things and do these things so that the full measure of my joy will be in them. Apparently full measure is spitting out the top. There's more for everyone. And you see, he recognizes not only do we need to progress in the faith, but you see the main thing he focuses on wrapped up in that is joy. Because joy is the power. There's nothing more powerful than joy. Maybe fear, maybe hate, but they're just close second and third to joy. Joy is the most powerful thing in the world in a human creature. Yeah, I know. Okay, so let me end with this. There's basically two things to take, we can take from this. There's a hundred things we could take from it, but... I should probably preach for like three hours. The Packers are like dead in the water, right? So like, let's just go, right? I'm just kidding. Okay, so two realizations that we'll look at today. We'll look at a bunch more over the course of the year because we're going to do this all year. The first is, is that once you understand where joy sets itself, all of this makes sense. All of the like, well, why didn't God give us his power? And he made this promise and he didn't fulfill it. And I can't lift this thing on my own. And what the heck is going on? And why am I so stuck? All that just burns off like mist. Okay? Because think about this for a second. Right? Let's go back to Second Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for godliness. Okay, great. What's the next line? Shout it out. His divine power has given us everything we need for godliness through our knowledge of him who called us, which is whom? Jesus. Good. Okay. So God's power that is everything we need for godliness comes to us how? Through Jesus. What's the next line? What's the next word? 
through or by his own glory and goodness. Okay, think about this. Do you see what I'm saying? How, how does the power, how do we get the power? The power comes through Jesus. Well, which, well, see, you see, if you just look, read this on the Sunday school level and you're just like jumping to conclusions, okay? You're like, oh, it's through Jesus. Well, I believe in Jesus. I should have it. No, you're not listening to the Bible. You've got to listen to what the verse actually says, okay? Prepositions are so important. Okay. His divine power has given us everything we need through our knowledge of him who called us. So through Jesus— by. So there's a specific thing about Jesus. There's something in Jesus, in all of the stuff that's in Jesus, that is the means by which the power comes to us. And it's not, the, it's not his death itself. It's not the Holy Spirit itself, himself. It says that it comes by his glory and goodness. Okay? Through which he has given us what? His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may what? Participate in the divine nature. That sounds an awful lot like putting on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, right? You can't get confused in the Bible when the language changes, but it's talking about the same thing, okay? It's talking about what happens in us, right? And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, you can never really become the yourself you're meant to be if God just dumps capacity on you. I mean, think about this. That's ex if that were to happen, that's the exact reason everybody hates religion, right? Because if you just had power to do the right thing, what does that mean? It just means that, like, you're able to do your duty, right? That's what everybody's afraid religion will be. They'll be like, oh, if I go to church, people are going to want me to be a good person, and I'm just going to have to do my duty. That's actually not what God is doing. What God is doing is for other reasons, for a set of reasons, through them he pours joy into the human heart. And joy is powerful. It's power. It's his divine power. And that divine power is connected to his, his goodness and his glory. And as his glory and goodness have been worked out in history, he has given these very great and precious promises, which culminate in the death and resurrection of Jesus, his promised return, his giving of the Spirit, the whole story of God, and how that story of God will end in our, all of our hopes as promised in the Scriptures. And he says, if you see that, if you apprehend it, like in your mind's eye, you have been built with a longing that's deeper than most of us have ever accessed. And it will, it will access that longing and it will bring up in you a strength out of joy. It will fill you full to overflowing with joy. And that joy becomes the strength by which you sail. Do you understand? That's why you can't do it without joy. You can't do it without joy. But what that also means is this. Once you realize that, what, what does that tell us about sanctification or growing in godliness? It means that it isn't—it's a sweaty business, but it's not an achievement because you can only receive that by faith. Because how do you get the joy? Well, the only way to get the joy is by somehow accessing 
God's glory and goodness as displayed in his very great and precious promises. That is, you seek, to put it in the words of Jesus in Matthew, you seek God's kingdom and righteousness first before anything else. You peer into God. You see what he's really like. You see his, the greatness of his magnificence. You see the goodness of everything that he does. You see how these begin to interrelate to each other. You begin to see them in the work of God in his promises and actions in history. And then you begin to see his work and actions in the present where you never would have believed it before. You now see that it's God doing it and it's encouraging, it's strengthening, it's hope then accesses joy and it fills you from the bottom up. And there is a kind of moral and spiritual power in joy that is capable of lifting the boat. So as the spirit blows into its sails, you just pilot it. You see, it's, it's our, and you, see, you can only access that by believing that God is worth seeking. And if you seek God wanting to know him, what does the Bible calls that, call that? Faith. You see, when you realize that joy is the power of godliness, then it becomes actually obvious how sanctification or godliness or holiness can only come by faith and not by works. Not because, not because God demands it or because we got to get our theology straight, but because that's the only way it can ever work in a human creature. And God understands his own human creatures, and that's how he made us, and so that's how he redeems us. Right? The second thing is that um, if you look at our memories, so, so you hopefully got a card in your bulletin. I don't know what I did with mine, but these are our first memory verses for the year. You can get one on the way out if you didn't get one. It says, fighting for joy. And on the back it has 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and Romans 12.12a. Okay? So these are the verses you can have them memorized before you walk out of here. Okay? The first, we'll do Jesus wept next week. But the first one is, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.16, be joyful always. And Romans 12, 12a, be joyful in hope. Okay? Now, those are commands. Do you understand that? They're commands. Be joyful. And now listen. The Apostle Paul could have said, under the inspiration of the Spirit, be cheerful. Okay? Because you don't have to be happy to be cheerful. Cheerful is just a basic act of love. Other people have to deal with you. Okay? They don't want your bad attitude inflicted on them. And, and so quit pretending like you're being authentic by being a jerk. Okay, you're not. You're just being a jerk, right? Authenticity is realizing that there are other selves besides yourself, and they deserve for you to treat them with cheerfulness. Right? Instead of inflicting your bad attitude on them, right? But he doesn't say be cheerful. He takes it deeper than that, because joy is treated in the Bible as an internal virtue. He's talking about your heart and what should be going on in your heart. And he says, you should be joyful. Be joyful always. Now, on one level, that could be a little bit discouraging because you're kind of like, whoa. I mean, it kind of feels like you're telling me to have a certain kind of feeling. And I don't even know how to have certain kinds of feelings. Like, I don't even—right? And, 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 and listen, I get that. And, and p listen, part of it is our lack of emotional depth and our inability to create, to have the emotions that we want to have is mostly rooted in our worldliness, 
right? When you allow yourself to be shrunk and made into a small being and a shallow, frothy being by a really, like, like a consumeristic, self-focused kind of life, then your emotions are going to be really chaotic and really dead, right? And so you're going to be very prone to things like depression. And it's, it's one of the reasons why, like, everybody's taking depression drugs, right? And listen, there are some people who have very clinical depression that is rooted in a lot of biochemistry. And listen, I will stuff the pills down your mouth for you. But like, that is not why like one in five or something people, like there's so much like depression medicine in our water that our fish can't even have feelings. They're so stabilized. (laughs) Right? And, and those pills can't save you. All they can do is narrow you so that you don't fall off the depth into gloom. But like a number of people have said, like, I'm on those drugs and somebody died and I felt nothing. Because like that's what can happen. Like, because we're supposed to have emotional range. It says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Right? We're supposed to lament and be sad and be happy and full of joy. And you're supposed to go up and down. And if you have a deep, enriched character where you're becoming yourself in a deeper, fuller, more eternal kind of way in the image of God, you're going to have these extraordinarily broadened out capacity for emotion. And the things worth having joy in are so multitudinous. There's, there's so many things to take joy in. There's so many things that are rooted in reality to take hope in. That if you know how to have the disciplines of hope, and if you know how to look at the world with faith, there's never a point when your heart should be absent of joy. It may feel like there was a lot of weight of pain on it. It may feel like you don't like your circumstances. There can be a lot of things accompanying the presence of joy. But the Apostle Paul says, is that joy can always be present. It is that powerful and that stable. And what that means is this. That joy is not just a feeling, it is a virtue, like love. And virtues have feelings, but they also have practices and actions and because they're, they're really a strength of character. And when you have something in your character, you'll have feelings on the basis of it. You'll act on the basis of it. You'll make choices on the basis of it. And joy is a virtue. And the good news is this. That means you can pursue it. Right? Because the alternative is just determinism and pessimism. Like, well, I just feel bad and there's nothing I can do. That's not true. There are things that you can pursue that in pursuing them, you will find a certain virtue. And as that virtue builds, it will produce the attending feelings. And the attending feelings on joy is a happiness. And it means you don't have to be passive. You're not locked in it. There isn't nothing you can do. There's everything you can do. And that's actually really good news. Over the course of this year, we're going to look at a lot of these things. For the next five weeks, we're going to look at the internal life of joy as related to the marks of substance, like what it, what it means to have joy in relationship to the mind of Christ and keeping in step with the Spirit and virtuous freedom and self-sacrificial love. And next week, we'll talk about joy in poverty, 
because I, I think it's really important to keep that Sunday as, as um, Freedom Sunday. And I think talking about having joy, um, the Bible has a very strong idea of joy for the poor in all the meanings of that word. And we'll talk about that next week. But then, for about four weeks, we'll talk about this, all the celebrations in the Old Testament. And we'll try to remember this, the, the discipline of celebration. I don't know if you realize this, but especially like standard, like middle-class America, we don't celebrate anything. Do you, do you understand this? Like there's nothing as miserable as Christmas. Right? Just buy presents. Do we have enough of them? All right, now we're all angry. Like, there's this this great passage in one of Lewis's books where he's like, nothing makes people so miserable as trying to keep Christmas. Right? We don't, we don't, I mean, we don't really celebrate anything except maybe sports achievements. Like, we don't, we don't dress up. We don't wear ties. We don't make something special by our dress. We don't make something special. We have no chance. Nobody says hip hip hooray anymore for anything. Like there's a, like, there, there's like a couple drinking songs if you play rugby and you get drunk enough. And then there's like when your team wins in football, like that's it. We have like no capacity for celebrating anything else. And that is not like God commanded his people four times a year to have a big festival. And of those four, one is a fast and three are parties. That's 75% party on Team Jesus, okay? (laughs) Because listen, people don't understand this. And it's so hard to really grasp it. The conspiracy of heaven is that eternal joy is hidden under, under goodness. And and God calls goodness out of us and demands it. And the thing he means to give us in it is eternal joy. The conspiracy of hell is that under the veneer of freedom and pleasure, it gives misery and death. God invented joy. Heaven is a place of joy. God created us in joy. God created you for joy. God gave us to each other for our enjoyment. There's no pleasure on planet Earth that doesn't have to be twisted to become sin. And it's the Bible that says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But they're not the pleasures of like bliss. Or it's just kind of like this contentless, like drug-induced weird happiness where you're sort of like strangely in a like Grateful Dead kind of way playing a weird harp. Like these are, these will be pleasures rooted in the solidity of goodness. And things that are that wholesome never grow old, don't you see? There are some things in relationship like friendship, the joy of friendship. You can make the same jokes 50,000 times and they're still funny because you like each other. And there's an acceleration of enjoyment of each other in wholesome friendship. And you can be friends for eternity and enjoy it. You can't eat ice cream for eternity and enjoy it unless there's something God does. I believe very strongly, I believe in the core of who I am, that... One of the reasons we struggle so much with godliness and struggle in our faith is that we we actually haven't learned how to be happy in God. We haven't learned how to pursue joy. We don't know that joy is the power, the power that we need for godliness. 
And so many of us, even last, last year, some of you may have been like, yeah, I want to leave worldliness behind. I don't want to go back to that torn heart. And I want to be what Jesus made me to be. And I want to grow in godliness. And I want to, I want to be that thing. And, I, and like you're already kind of like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. And I understand that. And that's why the next thing to build on that is we need to learn how to be people of joy. We need to know how joy functions, how it's a gift of God, how it relates to godliness in all its facets. We need to learn how to celebrate again. We need to learn how to engage in the disciplines of affirming each other for what God is doing in each other's lives, to bring each other joy in showing what God is doing. We need to learn to actually love each other we need, we need to learn to see how everything in the world re- relates to the glories of God because it's not just the death and resurrection of Jesus or the goodness of God's internal metaphysical character that's supposed to make us happy. The very great and precious promises and the good and glory of God is kind of like a coral reef, right? It is a great thing in and of itself, but it, it itself is the structure that starts an ecosystem that 10,000 other organisms swirl around. And joy in God's glory and goodness and his very good and gracious promises is like that. It's, it's taking hold of this huge reef of the beauty of God, but it also takes in all the swimming organisms of everything in our lives so that you can be happy in the fact that God is an eternal being of perfect goodness and you can be happy about a tree. In all of these things, there's this ecosystem of joy. And see, right now is... We want to be happy about the little fishes swimming around the reef, but when the reef isn't there, the fish aren't there. And so we wonder why all we ever get for happiness is one little fish swimming swimming along. Get the structure of the glory of the beauty of the gospel in place, and an ecosystem of joy will grow around it. And you will learn how to be happy in everything. Until you're the kind of idiot that goes to work with a broken arm, people are like, you broke your arm? It's the best broken arm I've ever had. Because people like that are annoying because it's not natural. Because it isn't natural. Joy is the supernatural power that drove Jesus, right? Joy is the thing so powerful in Jesus that it actually can do the impossible in us. And I I want you to consider giving yourself to giving yourself to this for a year till we master it until we teach 10 generations how to be joyful in Christ. And so we're going to practice right now with communion. The death and resurrection of Jesus for you. You didn't deserve it. You were his enemy. You didn't want him. And he saw you from eternity past and he came in time and space and he gave himself for you. And he loves you. And he loves you not because you're lovable. He loves you because he's loving. And he sees the beauty of his image in you, though it's been crusted over, that he's going to re-reveal in your restoration. And he will do it. And the beauty of that should bring us joy. Father, as we come to this ordinance together and we do what you told us to do, just like all the other festivals of the Old Testament, you commanded us to do this. We recognize that this is a remembrance, and in that sense it's solemn, but we remember that it's a celebration of what you've accomplished. Please, 
as we remember your death and resurrection for us, as we confess in faith your death until you come, will you please help us to see its beauty and your goodness and glory in it and the precious promises associated with it. And would you build in us joy 